0: Big fella.
1: Can y'all hear me
2: good? take hey, me down on them headphones. Yeah, that's
1: that old go go term there, Dickie. <laughs> <laughs> Turn me down on the bottom of
2: this. Welcome back to the Step to the Mic podcast. Chris Miles, Ted Jeffries here with you. And of course, our distinguished guest, Dickie Simpkins, three time champion, first round pick in 1994 by the Chicago Bulls. Should we do it? Starting at power forward, is 6'9", 248 pounds, Nikki Simpkins. Look, I
0: don't have the line here. The the walkout line is not here, but I'm I'm backing it out.
2: (laughs) Okay, so as I was just saying, you were drafted in 94. Uh, That was during Jordan's retirement, so the Bulls in their second season playing without MJ, like, all right, he's not coming back. But then he did come back, so that's your rookie year. What was that like? Did you get when did you get the sense that he was coming back? When you got drafted, did you think there was any possibility he was coming back? And what was that whole situation like? How it went down? Well, when I got
0: drafted, man, I was just ecstatic, man. Um, I was so excited about going to play for the Chicago Bulls. They had built a championship brand already, so it was like, man, I'm playing for. The Chicago Bulls, the team MJ played on, they already have won three championships. So I was just so super excited. And fast forward from June all the way to training camp, start practicing. And all of a sudden uh, in December, I'm sitting, I'm sleeping on the couch before practice. I was just taking a little nap and we had practice and it was in, uh, in the lounge and when you entered the practice facility you had to come through the lounge. So I'm sleeping, the door opens, somebody walks in and says, what's up young fella? And I kind of turn, but I can't really make it out. And I'm like, man, that that couldn't be MJ, man. I just go back to sleep for a few more minutes. I get up, I go get ready for practice. I come into the training room to get taped. And sure enough, it was MJ. And that was kind of the beginning of the talk. I guess people had saw him creep into the building. And then it started to materialize. Phil sat us down one day and was like, MJ's coming back. Let's keep it quiet. Keep it under wraps. Don't see anybody say anything. And then probably about two two weeks later, he starts practicing with us. And then everything went from zero to 100, man. Went zero to 100. Practice got even more intense. Uh, Everybody started flocking to the practice facility, trying to catch glimpses of MJ coming out, trying to get words from us to say he's coming back. But we did a good job keeping on the wraps and then it just went from there, man. I was like, man, at first, I didn't think I was going to play with MJ and now it's getting ready to be a reality. It was just amazing. So Dickie,
1: just give me a sense of that aura when MJ's walking in the building. I mean, outside of that first time when you, you know, it seemed like it, it was all a dream at that point, you know what I mean? But then when you, on a regular basis, tell me about that aura to having the greatest player already established at that time walking in the building every day and then this is your teammate.
0: Man, it's just like how you see it in the movies, man. On TV, it was like a bright light. Woo! (laughs) Walking into the building. And, you know, it just, it just was that aura, that atmosphere of respect and um, also of, you know, just seeing and witnessing how the greatest player in the game moved from a basketball standpoint, a preparation standpoint, a mental standpoint, and uh, just from a leadership standpoint. So, you know, you some of those guys had already played with MJ before. Um, and so they kind of already had a little feel. Some of the guys that played against MJ and had a little feel. That was my first experience uh, playing with MJ, practicing with him. So you know you could tell right away the, the level of respect, the level of um everybody kinda like you know how it is like, oh man, you better get you better get your A game together, you better be ready every day in here. And then they had kind of gave me some rookie stories of how he how he would do rookies. So, you know, I was kinda getting myself prepared for you know, the the rookie part of my, my experience to get it intensified. So just across the board, man, when I say zero to a hundred and when you ask me the question about the aura, the the respect and everything that just came when he walked in the building, it was uh it was it was surreal. I mean, it was just I guess what you would expect from what you hear about the best player to play the game.
1: All right, so so while you there, give me your best rookie story so if mj has this you know if he's if he's known for treating the rookies a certain way what's the best way how did he get you
0: well i have to say based on the stories that i heard i probably got the lightest um rookie treatment from mj but but there was one situation that you know was uh i had to make a decision you know when you you got to decide on what you're going to do and we were. We were in New Jersey getting ready to play the New Jersey Nets at the time they were playing at the Meadowlands and we had shoot around. And we're in shoot around, shoot around is ending. And all of a sudden, MJ takes the basketball and kicks it all the way up to the just punts it all the way to the top of the Meadowlands arena. And the equipment guy, the equipment guy is like, yo, Rook, you gotta go get there, you gotta go get that. And everybody's walking out to the bus, and I'm like. Nah, I'm not going to get that. I'm just going to have to take the fine. I look at Phil. Phil looks at me. I said, Phil, you're going to have to find me on this one, man. I I, I get that I got to do my rookie duties, and I was doing them. But this kind of got to a level where it was like it was really tested what kind of rookie I was going to be, I felt like. And I was like, I'm not going to go all the way up to the top of the arena to get that ball. I'm going to take this fine and call it a day. I'll do all my other stuff. And then the equipment guy just kept on saying, Rook, you better go get it. You better go get it. I said, yeah, I'm not getting that. And uh, lo and behold, I did get that good fine. I think that fine was like $50 or something like that or $100. But I, I took the fine on that one. And uh, that was kind of like the only, other than that, uh, I never had any nightmare experiences of being a rookie with MJ. Never had to go any donuts and none of that crazy stuff. So that was that was my only
2: one. So... As a rookie, it seems like you didn't get hazed too much. But as far as defining your role, it seemed like you knew what it was. But when MJ was gone, you know, for guys like Tony Kukoc, for Scottie Pippen, they took larger roles uh, when Mike was away. How did that change uh, from the you know, beginning of the season when you're playing with Scottie and Tony to the middle of the season, to that next year? How did their, I guess, their presence, their roles change on the team from your perspective?
0: Well, Pip became the big dog, obviously, and the leader, and the, and the star of the team. And so, uh, I got to watch Pip transition into and trying to embrace that role. You know, I got when I got drafted, I was watching. Before I got drafted, I was watching uh, Bulls play the Knicks in the playoffs, and you know, I saw the incident where Pip didn't go in the game when Phil drew up the play for Tony, and I thought that was pretty interesting. And then. <laughs> I was like, wow, man, Pip Pip is tweaking out here. And then when I get drafted by the Bulls, I'm like, oh, man, we get ready to see what Pip is really about because that was kind of crazy. And so fast forward, I get to the Bulls, and, you know, I see Pip really trying to embrace this star role and carry the Bulls. And I saw the transition of the bond between Pip and Tony and Pip trying to really help Tony come along defensively and just – to be that wingman to Pip. And you know, it, Pip did a good job. I mean, it was frustrating at times. It was challenging because you had to think, Pip is transitioning into a situation of being a leader with no MJ. So Pip's trying to embrace that. Pip's trying to build a, a new identity for the Bulls with Pip being the leader. So it was, it was frustrating at times for him, but I have to say he did an unbelievable job um, just just showing his leadership, blending with Tony. But I remember one time he got real frustrated during a game and we were playing at the United States and Pip got so mad, he came over and grabbed one of the chairs from the bench, picked it up, and walked out and threw the chair in the middle of half court, man. I was like, yo, it's real out here. I've never seen anything. That was like a that was like another step more intense. Then when Bobby Knight threw that chair from the bench, you know, Bobby Knight just took it and flinged it out on the court. Pip actually picked up a chair and took it, walked towards half court and just lunged it in the air in the midcourt. Obviously, he got thrown out of the game, but at the end of the day, Pip handled it. And then when MJ came back, you could see that it was like Big Brother's back now. You know what I mean? You, you, and MJ still knew and showed to allow Pip to be him. But it was like Big Brother's back, and it was like a little bit of relief feel, and it just went to a whole different atmosphere as far as uh, the leadership. Because MJ's leadership was just, um, you know, incredible, very intense.
1: So you come back, uh, MJ comes back, excuse me, and then further along the line you talk about bringing in leadership and acquiring talent. You bring in the most enigmatic player, that the game has probably ever seen when you talk about Dennis Rodman, the worm that comes in, a rebounding machine. And, you know, it's it's been documented. You watch the uh, you know, Last Dance documentary, and they talk about what I mean ignomatic, the enigma that is Dennis Rodman. You see his off the core persona. But everybody, to a man, when they talk about his, how he fit how he would fit in with the Bulls, Scottie Pippen is quoted as saying that he fit like a hand in the glove you know, he's one of the smartest defensive players that they have ever played against or played with and, and how he, you know, just took to this Bulls team. Talk about how Dennis came in and affected the 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 morale and the persona of this Bulls team.
0: Well D. Rod man <laughs> <laughs> I I'm just gonna say D Rod was a very eccentric eccentric uh character or person, obviously. And, uh, you know, a lot of it was his brand, um, his brand, his, 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 his ego and off the court. Um, but I remember when we first started training camp and the transaction for D-Rod had been made. And, you know, we all could just go off of what we knew about D-Rod and I'm like, oh, snap. You know, we can really see how this really is gonna turn out. And I remember D-Rod being in first practice and he wasn't saying anything to nobody. Dude didn't talk to anybody. And we had Jack Haley there at the time. Jack came over also and signed to kind of help Dennis with his uh, transition. But D-Rod didn't say anything to anybody. So I'm like, you know, coming from the DMV, coming from DMV, I'm like, man, who is this
2: dude, man? This <laughs> dude, I said. Oh, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. When you say he didn't talk to anybody, like if you say, yo, what up? He just wouldn't respond, or he didn't initiate.
0: No, he didn't initiate talking, and then went, and then it, you, you didn't even get to the point where you said what up, because the way he came in was like it was like he wasn't initiating. He wasn't even looking anybody's way, so he was like you basically like what's up with this dude. So like I said, kind of where I'm from, I'm like. You know what I'm saying? I'm not getting ready to bow down to nobody, man. You got—I—I—I I, I want respect. I'm gonna give you respect. I want respect. So that was like the initial, the initial uh, meeting of D-Rod. So it was like, all right, this is gonna be interesting. But I gotta give it to D-Rod. Out of not really talking to guys, kind of doing his own thing, doing his marketing and stuff off the court, man. D-Rod came to work and did his job, man. Did his job on the court. He would come to practice, get his job done. And uh, he would talk on the court though. That's the funny thing. He wouldn't talk during practice. He wouldn't talk when we were on the bus. He wouldn't talk in the hotel. But on the court playing games, D-Rod was competitive and communicated and was like, he would talk to you. And I, I remember, he comes to the team. I'm already, I'm already kind of looking at him sideways because he's not saying anything. And then for three years of playing with D-Rod, we only had two conversations. We had two conversations in three years. But but, but to answer TJ's question, D Rod's professionalism as far as on the court, coming to do his job, took us to a whole nother level, rebounding wise, defensive-wise, and yes. His basketball IQ was on point. He was able to blend into the triangle real well. And I don't think people realize, but d was an underrated passer. He had a very good knack and skill and feel and vision for passing the ball and could defend and guard anybody, man. So that was kind of how the transition went. And then uh, like I said, D-Rod and I only had two conversations. He 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 sat next to me one time on the plane <laughs> when I was playing in his spot. At the beginning of that 72-10 winning season, and uh, I was starting in D. Rod's position, and one day we were flying from somewhere, and he came and sat next to me, and I look at him like, what's really going on? <laughs> he starts just kind of asking me how I feel like I'm playing. I said, I feel like I'm playing pretty good. He said, yeah, you are, you are. And then he gave me some tips, and which I thought was cool, and it surprised me. And then the next time we talked after that was the last championship in the locker room. And fast forward, fast forward, like whatever amount of years later, whenever the Super Bowl was in Phoenix, I run into D-Rod at a party in the hills in Phoenix when they had the Super Bowl, D-Rod's there. And D-Rod talks with me longer that night than he talked talk to me. <laughs> Three years of playing with him. So I thought that was cool. So every time I see D-Rod now, I saw him in the Vegas Summer League last summer when we chopped it up, and he's a good dude.
1: So it's probably fair to say, Dickie, when you talk about that quietness that he had when he first walked on the court for the first practice, was him just being in a business-like mode where, you know, people talk about perception being reality. The perception would be is that, you know, this dude is standoffish. You know, he's not talkative. He's not, you know, amongst the team, whereas he's in his mind. He's like, I'm going to give you my best business-like uh, approach to this game, and I'm going to go about my business rather than getting caught up in the, in the antics. So when you talk about things that he shared with you, tips that he gave you, what was some of the best, you know, advice that Dennis Rodman, you know, the greatest rebounder, one of the best all-time defenders in the game has ever seen. What is What are some of the things that he imparted with you from his vast knowledge of the game that you took with you and applied to your game?
0: The two things he talked about on the plane that day was one, just uh, the timing, just the timing of watching the shot, and the ball coming off the rim, really, really working on and focusing on the timing and instinct of when that ball is shot and coming off that rim. He talked about that a lot. And then he talked about just the leverage, the leverage from a physical standpoint, defending guys that were bigger than me, um, stronger than me, and just be doing your work early and staying and staying uh, mobile. And that was the two big things that he taught to me. But Again, like I said, like after I got past the initial transition of D-Rod coming to the team and saw him operate in practice and in games and saw him actually talk on the court, I kept gaining more respect for him because on the court he he would talk to you and you could see that he's all about winning. And and his and his thing off the court, it was just uh, D-Rod was just a a different cat you know his personality wise it wasn't that he was trying to big time anybody by not talking to him it just it was kind of i don't want to say he was shy it was just kind of his personality um from a not really like a big conversation guy to, at that point in time so that's pretty much how i played out
2: yeah you certainly played with some uh controversial legendary guys in your time in chicago, chicago with dennis Rodman, mj and scotty but after your two championships, you were traded to Golden State, right, for Scott Burrell. And everybody knows, you know, we get that you got three rings. So then they waved you and you went back to the Bulls. But in that time, in that short period that you were with the dysfunctional Golden State Warriors, one of the more – uh I guess, notorious moments in NBA history, Latrell Sprewell chokes out your head coach, P.J. Carlissimo. Okay, so what was that like to go from, we just won two titles with this well-oiled machine playing with Michael Jordan in Chicago to going to Golden State where your top scorer is choking out your head coach? Oh, hey, is this one of those
0: moments? Step to the mic. Step to the mic. Come on in, big fella. Come on in. Close. Hey, <laughs> um, yeah, I, uh, I won two. I was with the first two championships, and you know, I was kind of feeling like I wanted to try to expand. See if it was somewhere where I could expand my role. I got an opportunity to play with the greatest player to ever play the game play with some great players, top 50 players, see a championship environment in the NBA. And I was young, so I had to pay my dues, wait my turn. So I kind of wanted to see if there was some way I could go to have a more expanded role. And the trade situation worked with Golden State. And Scott Burrell and I were trading for each other, which I always mess with Scott. That He better bow down. I helped him get a championship ring. And so I go out to Golden State in September, the beginning of that 97, 98 season. And when they say the grass is not always green on the other side, they're not lying. So things didn't work out like I hoped to and wanted to. Um, Not by my part. I did everything I could do. But the environment was like night and day to the environment of the Chicago Bulls. You know, when I was with the Chicago Bulls in those first championships, you had the ultimate leader, you had the ultimate wingman and everybody else uh did their role to to the T. You know, everybody accepted their role, did their job because if you didn't, you weren't gonna be there. Or well, MJ was gonna cut you out even more for not doing your job. And then we had the ultimate respected head coach in Phil Jackson. So going to Golden State, I get there, it was a veteran team. Muggsy was in Muggsy was kind of towards the end of his career, he was having some dealing with his knees, B.J. Armstrong was there, Felton Spencer, Dwayne Pharrell. So we had some veteran guys there, Bimbo uh, Bimbo Coles, Brian Shaw. But then we had some young guys also. Daniel Marshall was a lottery pick, Joe Smith. So we had some young, O'Donnell Foyle. And then the leader was Spreewell. And even though we had veteran players, Spreewell was the show. He was the marquee guy. And Colissimo was on his second coaching stint. He had coached Portland Trailblazers before that. Well, the environment was just different, man. They were trying to figure out how they could move Joe Smith. That Joe Smith's will connection didn't really work. And um one day it just I was <laughs> we were at practice and uh we're doing this drill, and the next thing I know, I hear all this commotion and it just turned into the Jerry Springer reality TV show. Uh, Real House Husband Players of the NBA type stuff, man. And it it <laughs> got crazy. And I was like, wow. And all you see is everybody running over, trying to trying to get Spree away from Carlissimo. You see Muggsy holding on to Spree's leg like Van Gundy was doing so back in the day in that New York Knicks series. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just like the ultimate jerry springer reality tv show moment and i was just like wow this big fella I- but I- hold up so paint the picture though i need to hear some of the what was the language what was being
1: said like what what did spree say or what did pj say to spree to make him to to kirk out and then what you know what was what was the dialogue we need to hear that big fella
0: all right, so let me give you some context, right? Okay, so I've been a leader. I've been a leader for my college team. We won a championship. I've been a role player for NBA team, and we won championships. I had a leadership role with the with uh, Providence College. I had my role with Bulls, where I watched the ultimate leader MJ, um, and the respect that was given to him, the respect he had for Phil, and the respect Phil had for him, and everybody did their job. At Golden State, it was different. It didn't just all of a sudden break out in that one day of the choking. Um, From my time being there up until that point, it kind of just built to that. It was just like, you know, your main player, your leader at the time, will just didn't have the respect level for PJ and Coach Carlissimo. And it just kept building from the beginning, kept building. And you know how it goes. You don't. You don't put, a, you don't put a, a stop to that. You don't shut it down. You know, you don't, you don't have the ability, whether the coach in the front office or whatever the case might be, to get that situation in check, then the level of disrespect, the level of tension is gonna to continue to grow and that's what happened. And then um, it just got to a point where it was just no level of respect for the coach or how things were going. And that day in practice, we were doing some drills. I was at the far end, so I don't know. I don't. I don't remember what specifically. Or I don't. I believe PJ, from what I understand, PJ has said something to Spree in a drill, and I just guess it just boiled over for Spree over there all oh, that whole time, and then Spree just snapped off out there, and then everybody turned around and went over there to kind of, kind of break it up. But uh, the choking part didn't happen until the second, the second stage of the whole reality TV show. So Spree had, you know, left out the gym and then he came back in. And then that's when it went to a whole another level, man. So it was just, like Chris put it at the beginning, it was a level of dysfunction, disrespect, and just, um, just not not what I had experienced in Chicago. And um, it just, it is what it was at the time. And after that, they made a move with Joe Smith. They made the trade with Joe Smith. And I was kind of a casualty of war. They waived me. And then my agent called me like two weeks later into that second week after being waived and said, Jerry Krause called him. And he said, Phil and MJ wanted me back. And so that was just great to hear. Um, for those guys who want me back. And then after that, it just it, it sped up. And the next thing you know, I was back with the Bulls and it felt like I had never left. So that little reality TV segment was crazy, but I tried to get it out of my mind once I got back to the Bulls, man. We were preparing for the the, the Utah Jazz Series in that 97 um, championship run. And Phil wanted me to be Carl Malone, so, he let me live my best life. I was living my best life. I had the green light. I didn't have nobody have to fuss at me. I was living my best life. And I was going to work. I had to be in my confined role all the time. And He said, you're going to be calm along the whole series when you practice. Boy, I was going to work on loop. I, was- I was getting my touches.
1: Well, it looks like it all worked out for you, because I see the three. The three, uh, the hardware back behind you, you know, three yeah. times, three yeah. time yeah. champion. Hey, Dickie, let's take you back for a minute now. You know, we, we always represent the DMV on this show we're going to step to the mic and represent the DMV. So let's go back to the impetus so to the beginning. Uh, you know, friendly high school, Prince George's County, Maryland, you know, grew up in Fort Washington, uh, you know, played in the Capitol Classic, but let's talk about. You know, how you ended up, uh, let's go back to the beginning, how you ended up at, at Providence. And then we'll get into some of the players that you had to bump up against, uh, on your road, uh, coming out of the DMV to kind of help you shy, uh, sharpen the iron. But let's talk about your time at Friendly and how you end up at, uh, at Providence.
0: Yeah, man. So I was born in DC, man. My family was living in DC. Then they moved out to Fort Washington a little bit after I was born. And, um, my brother started me off in basketball, just started teaching me a little bit and always told me to just be versatile and know how to do everything on the court and be able to think the game. And that's kind of how I got started. And then one day I was in elementary school and I was in the fourth grade and then a kid in my class was like, Hey man, you know, my dad coaches the Fort Washington, Fort Washington, this uh, Fort Washington Rec League. And he was like, Why don't you come down and play? So they were playing on Saturdays. I went to my mother. I was like, oh, I want to, you know, I'm going to go play. She was like, all right. Went down and played one game, and I was out there doing everything, dribbling the ball down the court, scoring, and, you know, it's like anything. Once I saw that I could do these things and being so tall and it was kind of easy, that became basketball became my thing. Fast forwarded now. I'm in middle school playing. The coach I was playing for, he played at Friendly High School for Coach Roy Henderson. He took me up there one day after eighth grade seasons. told Coach that I was going to be going to Friendly. And so he stamped me. He basically told Coach, like, this is going to be your next guy. And uh, so Coach basically, because Coach Henderson had experienced coaching talent, he coached John Smith, who was a star, went to Duke. He coached Thurl Bailey at Bladensburg, who obviously became an NBA player. Coach had plan. You know, he had the ability to foresee, forecast, and he had the ability to put a plan together for talent. And so coach had me playing summer league, and I hadn't even got to high school yet. So this was a summer between eighth grade and ninth grade, and I'm out there playing. Um, varsity summer league with some of the best talent in PG County. You know, Byron Tucker at Potomac. You know, Henry Hall, Michael Tate, a lot of talent out there. So I had to transition pretty fast. And then, you know, time went on. I started playing varsity. I was on varsity as a freshman, wasn't playing that much. And then sophomore year, uh, that's when it went down and coach had to plan. And then it just went from there. And I figured it was real when coach told my mother I could get a scholarship one day and she wouldn't have to pay for school. And then he came to me with this letter. He showed me that I had got an invitation to the Nike camp, which only brought in 100 players in the country. And I didn't want to go, man. I was like, yo, I'm just going to chill at home. And uh, he was like, nah, you're going here. And that was the best thing I could do for my career and my progressions and development. And it just took off from there, playing against some of the best talent in the country and just continuing to see them from that point on in AAU and going back to Nike camp getting to the capital classic, being on an all met team two years in a row and all those things. And then when it came down to college, co- colleges to pick from man, everybody was coming to see the PG County was hot. And so I had opportunities to go to Duke, North Carolina, anywhere. And then uh, I was going to go to Yukon, And then one of my last visits was to Providence and it just felt, it felt right. Uh, Providence was the only, Thing in, I mean, it was the professional team in Providence, so that was big. Didn't have to compete against a football team, and we were the show. And it was a chance to play right away, and it was a chance to be on TV and play in the Big East, which I always wanted to do. So that's kind of how it evolved.
1: So, you know, think you talk about a lot of influence that you had. Obviously, your parents uh, got you started. You had Coach Henderson, I believe you said his name was, and some of the some of the folks along the way. Who gave you that that drive, that determination to be the player that you are right now, to have that work ethic, where did that all derive from? Where did that start?
0: It kind of started from my brother, man. My brother was—he played basketball. He was pretty good, um, but he would always beat me up playing one-on-one, and beat me up when I was a little kid playing. So that kind of started the foundation of toughness level. And then Coach Henderson kind of taught me from a mental standpoint on how to be mentally tough or start to mentally think the game out. Um, he always used to talk about mental was one as physical was the four. So, you know, I talked to Coach Henderson like a couple of weeks ago to ask him what he meant about that. And uh, he couldn't remember it, Coach Henderson is 83 now, but it it was something about mental being so strong versus a bunch of uh, power. And so that was his thing. And that kind of stuck with me. And then, Just always coming across uh, the people that um, didn't, people that would say that or think that I wasn't that good, or people that they thought were better than me. That kind of helped develop a chip on my shoulder plan. And so whenever I played against those guys, I was looking forward to it to kind of prove. And then Coach Barnes just, Coach Barnes beat beat you down with the mental toughness. You didn't have any choice. You're either going to be mentally tough or mentally weak. There was no in-between. And um, that experience helped build my mental toughness and helped me to compete at a high level, high level and have an edge. And so that's kind of how that evolved right there.
2: Hey, hey, Ted, I just uh, looked at your test right now, and I'm going to cheat off you a bit. You ready for this? Yes, sir. Uh, Dickie, you know, I heard you two talk about this before, and you just kind of casually dropped it in there about your schools and where everybody went. But I remember your time period. Uh, any regrets not going to Duke? Hello, national championships. See what they were able to accomplish. That was on the table for you. Like, you look back, you don't think, man, I could have won those championships at Duke
0: uh that's funny as you ask me I I I look I don't look back at it but at the time they were winning the championships again I was kind of pissed off it wasn't it wasn't pissed off that that could have been me or I should have went there because back in the day I remember coach Mike Bray used to come into the gym and watch me and recruit me and Mike Bray was an excellent recruiter but I was just like Everybody was trying to go to Duke. Everybody was trying to go to North Carolina. I think that year, probably four, got three guys from the DMV went to Duke. Kenny Blakeney, Grant Hill, Christian Ass. And I was just like, man, I'm not going where everybody else is going. And I had this thing about me. It's always been this thing that I want to go and build my own situation or go and build my own foundation. Um, and my own legacy and have a chip towards those guys. So I never looked back at it like that should have been me or I should have went there. I was more pissed off because it was like they're down there winning. They're playing against Michigan who Coach Steve Fish is just letting those guys in Michigan play. And I felt like Coach Barnes needs to just let us play because we came in as five freshmen. We actually, that recruiting class at Providence, we were the top five recruiting class. It was It was Duke, North Carolina, Kansas, and then Providence, top four recruiting classes of 1990. And I just felt like we, I wish coach would have let us play like those teams were playing and just let us go. But um, I never had any regrets about not going to Duke. Um, Obviously those teams, that team, or those teams were pretty good. I just was pissed off and had a chip and would look at it and be like, man, we could do the same thing here, Providence, and we, we finally got, Somewhere to that level, um my senior year, but we could have got there a little bit earlier. <laughs> so keep yeah, it up.
2: You no, know I'm saying you ended up g- getting your chips in the pros. I see the three behind you, man. So it all worked out. You're all good. Go ahead,
1: Ted. Yeah, so I want to, you know, his hat says keep it 100. So, of course, step to the mic, Dickie. We're going to keep it. We're going to keep it a buck as always. You know, when you talk about. uh you know, the talent, we played against a lot of talent, Dickie. You and I played on the Boston shootout team. You know, we got a chance to, you know, mix it up with, you know, players from Cali, from, you know, some of your future teammates, uh, Trent Forbes, Troy Brown, you know, but let's take it back to the DMV. You mentioned a bunch of players. You mentioned how much t- immense talent has come out of here. You know, when you think about some of the toughest dudes you had to to bump, get when you got that bump in, that Tucker Road bump, when you was down at, you know, playing Urban Coalition or Georgetown, the the, the Kenner League. Talk to me about some of the the, the toughest bump and the people that you had to go against here in the area.
0: Oh, man. Oh, man. Let me keep this 100, like you said. Let me step to this mic because I don't want anybody to get pissed off in the PG, (laughs) (laughs) Um, When I was coming up, when I was coming up in that uh, mid-'80s, early to mid-'80s, you know, developing and growing, man. The D M V, PG County basketball was at a high level, being recruited hard. You know, it's funny, people talk about PG County now. PG County was jumping for a long time, even before I came became a player, but you had to you know how this you know how this goes, TJ, you had to you had to get stamped. You had to be official and you had to do that going through playing outside, playing at the herbo, like you said, urban coalition, playing in the Kenner League, and then you had to eventually before you even got to all that, you had to be stamped by getting invited to Doc's Gym back in the day, because Doc's Gym was the level of pros. When you get to Doc's Gym, you better bring it, because you only get one shot. So just playing down in Tucker Road with guys like Stacey Robinson, the legend Stacy Robinson, playing in the PG County, like I said, against Mike Tates, the Henry Halls, uh, uh the... Walt Williams, Crossland had a squad, they had a mob back then with Anthony Hickenbach on Clarence Alfred, Walt Williams, Michael Tate was a beast, uh Ray Slater was balling, Jay Bys, the late Jay Bys, the brother of Limbyes, Northwestern had a mob. Um, playing against guys in the DMV, kurt Smith, uh You know, just playing those experiences, man, like you said, going to the Boston Shootout, which was like one of the biggest tournaments out there, we got to play against a lot of talent from all over. So just what they don't do now, they don't do this. Everybody's always trying to, when I watch the grassroots, everybody's trying to avoid having to play against the grind and not having your parents trying to dictate or guide your path that avoids playing to get stamped, to be official against some of the guys in the grind out there in the street or at a summer league, or like, you know how the herbo was. So, you know, I had to go through those different things and came up against a lot of talent um, in the area, man. Even like playing, playing against my teammate, Mike Smith. Mike Smith was a beast, that Dunbar team. So the talent at that time was out of control, man. and. Uh, Those are some of the guys that I came across that you had to prove yourself. And like I said, you only had one shot. If you you didn't get it done in one shot, man, you you were going to get written off in the the DMV and the PG area, man. So the, the, the talent was tremendous at that time, especially for one of the smallest places to produce a lot of talent in the United States, man. Basketball, football, and entertainment.
1: You know, you, you just talked to, you hit something right there, Dick. I want to talk about. You talk about the evolution or, you know, probably the, the antithesis of that. That being, you know, back in our day when we played the early 80s, it was, you know, it was a rite of passage. You you always call, you know, I would call up Henry Hall. I call up Kurt Smith that I hit. They would hit us up and say, look, we're going up to run and shoot. We're going to ball every day. We'll work out a little bit beforehand, uh, get, you know, get some weightlifting in. Then we're gonna we're gonna bump for a couple of hours. And it's only a select people, select group of people that could get on the court. Either you can stamp because you played college ball, you played overseas, or in the NBA. Those are the only ones that can play on that court. Nowadays, like my man Corey Alexander, my teammate, he would call me, you know, and he'd say, Hey, uh, or Jason Williford would call and he'd say, Hey, uh, where are they Because they got some young kids that, you know, want to get some get a workout while they in DC. Nobody's playing nowadays they either got a you know some kind of personal trainer somebody working out the, you know working them out on a daily basis but they ain't getting that they ain't getting that bump big fella so what what's happened to our game nowadays where guys don't want to you know iron sharpens iron as the word says and these guys aren't getting that, that that rub in
0: here's the things that have happened to the game and this is coming from a guy who I deal with the grassroots I've dealt with the grassroots for a long time have my own basketball AAU program out of chicago started it back in two thousand and six next level performance team in l p and we've had guys play through there come through the program that made it to n b a to europe so I'm not just saying this i've like i've seen the grassroots uh in the past fifteen years and the things that uh the things that uh have changed that i think are detriment to the game or the detriment to the development of the grassroots or to the basketball. It's kind of like, remember how they used to say in the DMV and the PGA, you're trying to, you're trying to hide from the wreck. You're trying to, you trying to avoid the wreck. Don't duck that wreck. Don't duck that wreck, man. Everybody out here, you know, when I watch the grassroots, like I was saying, they try to duck the wreck or they try to pick and choose which wreck they're going to play in. And I think if you really want to become a competitive athlete, you want to become a competitive player, and you want to be stamped, you want to be official, you want what they're saying to really match up with who you are as a player, I think that the generation of the basketball, you have to stop trying to duck the wreck. You have to stop trying to, you know, craft this perfect path to, the, to, the, to you know the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. It doesn't work like that. You have to go through the fire and there's going to be different types of level of the fire and withstand it, withstand that heat to prove that you you can really get down on that court. And I think that's a big part that has changed from back then to now. The next thing I would say that's changed is, and this is not just basketball, this is just in life, business, dealing with people. Everybody now avoids accountability, man. People hiding from accountability. Playing with the Bulls, you wasn't hiding from accountability. The best player that ever played the game was account, he held himself accountable. And you better believe, damn sure, he held, he holding everybody else on that team accountable, especially with the way he played, worked and approached the game mentally. So it's just like everybody is hiding from accountability. Like they want to be champions. They want to make all the money. They want to be the star player. But when it gets sticky, when things are not going right, when there's a little struggle, a little adversity, or you got to look yourself in the mirror, and the generation, the way basketball is now, you have people making excuses for you, and you start ducking the accountability. So you duck the rat, now you ducking the accountability, and you just can't do that. It's, it's like, you're not going to fulfill your potential, or you're always going to be, you know, it's always going to be questionable about your abilities on the court, because you ducking the accountability. And then the last thing, the last thing I would say that's changed is, is the competitive mindset, competitive edge, man. Like MJ, super competitive and everything. I felt like I had a level of competitors that competitiveness that was uh that was pushed and driven by my chip on my shoulder. I just think, man, guys, down basketball now, you don't see as much competitive drive from everybody from the majority. You, and there's some guys here. Kobe was competitive right? and there's some guys that are not brand name, household names that are competitive, but I just feel like it's not at the same level of it, as it was back then. Guys are more like, I always say to the kids, man, you wanna do you want to be liked or do you want to be respected? You can't be both. And like playing for MJ, playing with MJ, he, wanted, he was respected. If you want to be light, that's a, that's a situation where you're going to struggle. When it's adversity, you're going to struggle when people are defiant towards your leadership. So those are the three things that I think um, are different about the game outside of the physicality and the fast pace and three-point shooting is just ducking the wreck, ducking accountability. And, uh, and then at the end of the day, the competitive fire, the mental competitiveness and fire in, uh, in today's basketball.
2: It seems like those are things that you have to look for with your current job now as a scout as a scout for the Washington Wizards but take us to your first job as a professional you you relinked up with uh, Michael Jordan so it shows that you had accountability you had that work ethic and MJ saw that and you bringing you to the Hornets as a scout take us through that process and what that's done for your career later in life
0: Yeah um again When I got away from Golden State, my agent calling me, telling me that Phil and MJ wanted me back, that made me feel good. That made me feel like they respected my abilities. They respected my basketball IQ. They respected my professionalism and how I worked and then how I uh, embraced my role. So for them to want me back, for those kind of guys to want me back made me feel good. And I think from day one when MJ saw me as a rookie, he saw that I worked hard. He saw I didn't make any excuses. He saw I didn't talk back. I just did my job. If he yelled at me, I did my job. I, I I was accountable. And I think that translated to building the friendship that we have and that he can trust me and he knows I'm loyal to our relationship. And so fast forward, I'm driving one day down to Illinois, University of Illinois to do a TV game for ESPN. And um, I get a call on my way down and it's MJ and Rod Higgins had me on speakerphone. And MJ uh, was basically like, I want you to come down here and work with me. Work with we Come down here, grow, and come on down here and help us. And man, you know, that's MJ asking me to come work with him. I mean, there's nothing to think about. I didn't even have to think about it. It was just basically like, whenever you, whenever you're ready for me to come, I'm ready. I go head to the airport right now. And uh, it just kind of went from there, linking up, working for him with the, it was the Bobcats at the time. Then we transitioned into the Hornets, but working with him as a scout. And, you know, working with MJ is just like playing with him on the court. He's competitive. He wants you to do your role. He wants to win. And uh, it was the same thing. So the transition to doing that wasn't hard for me because I had already been around MJ and I knew what his expectation was. But again, the fact that he gave me a call and asked me to come down and work with him and showed me again, he respected my work. My work ethic, my ability to know this game and, and view the game—he knew I had been working with the grassroots, and so that's how it—that's uh, how it came about that I became a scout for
2: the Hornets. Cool. Well, Dicky, we appreciate your time. Three rings, first-round draft pick, great guy, scout. Uh, Ted, am I missing any superlatives about our man that you want to throw out there? <laughs> I mean, go
1: hard animal, for real. I mean, let's face it, the big fella to get three chips coming out, do what he did, man. That's impressive. Always appreciate your time, big fella. Appreciate who you are and how you're continuing to affect this uh, this, this next generation. Keep boogieing, my man, appreciate you.
0: Hey, I appreciate you guys, man, TJ, Chris. Appreciate you guys letting me step to the mic. <laughs> <laughs> Always. To, step to the mic, man, I'm here for you, man. I appreciate you guys.